Well, if you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to turn to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 19. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. We've been doing a verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. And Acts 19, 1 through 7 is where we are today. And I hope that you'll be able to uh, follow along. I got some notes for you if you need them. And the title of the sermon is 12 Almost Christians. 12 Almost Christians. And you'll see that here in our text as we get going here with verse 1. Acts 19, starting in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to sing I Surrender All, these other worship songs to the glory of your name. We thank you for the opportunity to open your holy word, which is inerrant, infallible, sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. And we thank you for the challenge that we have this morning before us of a text that we want to understand even better so that we can love you more and serve you more faithfully. So I pray that you would shine your light on your word and into our hearts as we seek to understand and apply it to our lives, all for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Rip Van Winkle is a short story written by American author Washington Irving, first published in 1819. If you're not familiar with the story, it tells of a Dutch-American villager in colonial America named Rip Van Winkle. One autumn day, he goes squirrel hunting in the mountains with his dog, Wolf, in order to avoid his wife's nagging. As evening falls, he hears a voice calling his name and finds a man dressed in acquainted Dutch clothing and carrying a keg. Rip helps the man carry his burden to a cleft in the rocks from which thunderous noises are emanating. The source of the noise proves to be a group of ornately dressed and bearded men playing ninepins. Not asking who these men were or how they knew his name, Rip Van Winkle then joins them in drinking from the keg that he has helped carry and soon becomes so intoxicated that he falls asleep. Rip awakens on a sunny morning at the same spot where he first met the keg carrier and finds that many drastic changes have occurred. First of all, his beard is a foot longer and has turned gray. His musket is badly deteriorated and his dog wolf is nowhere to be found. Returning to his village, he discovered it to be larger than he remembers and filled with people with unfamiliar clothing. Not knowing what to think, He is trying to recognize people of which he did not know. When asked how he voted in the election that had just been held, he declares himself to be a loyal subject of the king, King George III. 
And so Rip Van Winkle is basically the story of a man who drank a funny drink from a keg in the mountains, fell asleep, and 20 years later wakes up only to find that the American Revolution has already happened. Can you imagine such a thing? Well, these 12 men in Ephesus, when they reply, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit, in a sense have been asleep for about 20 years. They didn't know the full message of the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't know the full coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And so they were without context of some of the things that we'll look at here in our study today. These men had been out of the loop. They had missed out on the news of Jesus' full ministry. They, they missed the news even of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. They had not even heard what had happened at Pentecost. I mean, again, for us today, that would be like saying, I've never heard of 9-11. I, I've never even heard of covid who wishes that was true? <laughs> Never even heard of it. You know, but in the last 20 years, all kinds of stuff has happened in here in this passage of the New Testament to which Paul wants to bring them up to speed. And so that's why I'm saying these men were almost Christians. They weren't yet fully born again. They didn't have the full knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They never even heard about the Holy Spirit. And in fact, they just were somewhat familiar with the beginning stages of John the Baptist's ministry. And if you remember John the Baptist, he uh, said in John 1, 26 and 27, the Baptist said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So John the Baptist came to introduce to us Jesus. In Matthew uh, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn and the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the message of John the Baptist. He's saying Christ is coming and if you don't look to Christ, your life will be doomed. And so these men in Ephesus, I'm saying, I believe, were not yet Christians. They were almost Christians. They, they knew about God and they knew about John the Baptist, but they didn't really know God. They had heard of John the Baptist's ministry, but they had never heard the full revelation of Christ's ministry. They knew nothing of the Holy Spirit. And even today, not all possess, who, who profess faith in Christ actually possess Christ, right? Not everybody who says, I'm a Christian, is truly a Christian. There are many people who say, hey, I know about God. I know about the Bible. I grew up in Awana. I grew up in youth group. I grew up in church. I grew up in a Christian home. I was homeschooled. I was in a public school, whatever. But I had Christian parents who always pointed me to Christ. That's not enough to make you born again. In fact, the Bible is full of passages that warn us that maybe we don't really know Christ, and if we don't, we could fade away. The, the Bible talks about that in Hebrews, talks about that <clears throat> in Matthew 7, when Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so these, these kind of warnings should alert us to the possibility that we can appear to have a relationship with Jesus and even enjoy the closeness of a Christian community without truly knowing Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at three headings that will help us better understand how these 12 almost Christians here in Ephesus of Acts 19, 1 through 7, how they did indeed become true 
Christians. And so we're going to do it by looking at three headings. We'll see the baptism of John, verses 1 through 4. Then we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus, verse 5. And then the baptism of the Holy Spirit, verses 6 through 7. And so let's start with the baptism of John, verses 1 through 4. Your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, simply says the disciples of Ephesus. We're talking about what's going on in Ephesus here in verse 1, where it says, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Again, if you weren't with us last week, we studied Apollos. We saw how Apollos was an amazing man. He had a very gifted intellect. He had trained in the schools of Alexandria, and he was a very learned man, and he was mighty in the scriptures, but he didn't know everything. Even though he was very knowledgeable of the God of the Old Testament, he had not yet been trained in the school of Jesus. Apollos had the gift of communicating. He could proclaim truths from God's word with power and persuasion. And he was an ardent defender of the God of Israel. He even taught accurately the things that he did know concerning Christ. Apparently, he knew of Jesus but he didn't know Jesus. He, he knew some basic Bible facts of Jesus, but he didn't know the full effect of the blood of Christ that was shed for the souls of men and women who would repent and believe in him. And no matter how intelligent Apollos was, no matter how gifted of a speaker he was, without knowing the whole story, Apollos was still lacking. So God used Aquila and Priscilla, a dynamic couple this dynamic duo that ministered together in so much of the New Testament, and they pulled Apollos aside to explain to him, as the text says, the full way of God more accurately. And so Apollos then left Ephesus and he traveled to Corinth, which is what verse one says, while Apollos was in Corinth, and while we believe here that Aquila and Priscilla probably remained in Ephesus, and then uh, we saw when he travels to Corinth, look at verse 28 at the previous chapter, just to wrap up Apollos, it says, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing that by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And so we see that Apollos needed a full education, and the full education came from the scriptures. It didn't come from some, some you know, Ivy League school. It came from him spending time in the Word of God and having other men and women, in this case, Aquila and Priscilla, help him understand the full way of God. And when that happened, he was then able to powerfully continue his debate, his ministry, by refuting Jews, by showing from the Scripture, verse 28 says, that the Christ was Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the anointed one, that he was the one who would come and save his people from his sins. And so Apollos now has it. Priscilla and Aquila remain in Ephesus. And then the rest of verse one says, Paul comes back to Ephesus. Last week, we talked about how he wrapped up his second missionary journey. He headed from Ephesus for a few minutes and said, if the Lord wills, I'll come back to you. And then he went to Jerusalem. He went to Antioch, his sending church. And then he was sent out for the third missionary journey, went into some areas of Galatia and Phrygia. And then he comes back here to Ephesus where he wanted to return. And as he's coming back to town, coming back to Ephesus, notice the end of verse one says, there he found some disciples. He's somewhere in the inland country, which gives a little bit of the idea that he might be on the outskirts of Ephesus, maybe not downtown Ephesus. And he's coming back, he finds some disciples. How many disciples? Verse 7 says, and they, there were 12 in all. And the real question is, is are these disciples, 
that are mentioned in verse 1, true disciples in the Lord Jesus Christ, or were they still lacking? And there's some controversy that, that encompasses this passage, whether these disciples were already Christians or not. And I just wanted you to know that not every time the word disciple is used is it always talking about a born-again Christian. The term disciple has been used in other contexts to refer to the disciples of the Pharisees. For example, Mark 2, 18 and Luke 5.33. There's also the discussion of the disciples of John the Baptist. That's in Matthew 9.14 and John 1.35. Not even all of Jesus' disciples were Christians, right? How about Judas Iscariot? He wasn't a Christian, the son of perdition. And not only that, but in John 6.66, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And we understand from 1 John 2.19 that if they go out from us, then they were never part of us. So I'm simply saying, just because the text in in 19.1 says, oh, he saw some disciples, we can't immediately be like, oh, they are all born-again Christians. We're asking the question, who are these disciples? What do they know? What do they believe? Those who insist, however, that these men were already Christians use this passage as a proof text for their view that receiving the Holy Spirit is a subsequent post-salvation, second blessing type experience. You ever heard that in, in today's culture? Oh, have you received the second blessing? That's typically a question like this to be like, oh, you have Jesus, but have you received the Holy Spirit? That's what a lot of people might ask those kinds of questions. And they're getting that from this text where they're saying like, oh, maybe it's possible to be saved without being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I, I would say to you that such interpretations are missing the point of the passage. First of all, it commits the error of failing to consider the transitional nature of Acts. This book is a narrative reporting on what did happen. Acts is a historical book recording the facts. It is not a didactic book teaching and instructing us to go and do likewise. The miraculous nature of what is described in the book of Acts is not normative for today. That's just a fact. It's just not normal for us to see those kinds of miracles happening every day. I'm not saying God can't do miracles. He can do anything he wants at any time. But it's not like every day we're seeing healing and people speaking in real languages that they never studied in order to share the gospel with other people. Second, the thought that these men were already Christians is a faulty interpretation because it clearly contradicts other passages of Scripture. There are many passages that make it obvious that all Christians today, since the book of Acts, so I'm saying Acts is a transitionatory period, but since this time, whenever somebody gets saved, they receive the Holy Spirit at that time. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians 1.13 to prove that point from one of many passages you could look at. Ephesians 1.13 says this, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, so notice what it says, when you heard the truth, that's the scripture, heard the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, believed in who? Believed in Christ. At that time, last part of the verse says, then you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So you received the Holy Spirit when you received Christ. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit at the same time. This verse is addressing the fact that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit on the day that you receive Christ. Furthermore, the Bible makes it clear that those without the Holy Spirit are unsaved. 
Somebody doesn't have the Holy Spirit, they're not saved at all. Turn with me to Romans 8, 9. Romans 8, 9. I have a background in some churches that would say to me, if I'm not speaking in tongues or if I'm not uh, prophesying, then, uh, then I don't have the Holy Spirit yet. And, uh, but if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then, then you're not saved at all. And so this text of Romans 8, 9, because I, I would say, well, I am a Christian, even though I'm not doing those things. Some people say, well, you're not really a Christian yet. And to clarify that, you could do that just even from Romans 8, 9. says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Simply saying that if you have Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, you walk in the Spirit. If you're walking in the flesh, you don't have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you don't have Christ. So there's really no way from taking passages throughout the entire New Testament that you could come up with a theology of the second blessing. It only comes from this text primarily and just the progression throughout Acts, if you will, but I'm saying Acts is a narrative teaching us what did happen for a purpose of unifying the church over time. And it's not intended that every believer today would be filled with the Spirit, uh, baptized with the Spirit at a second blessing type experience. All those who have the Spirit have salvation. That's what the argument I'm trying to make throughout this message here in this passage together this morning. Bottom line, if you are saved, then you do have the Holy Spirit. If you're not saved, then you do not have the Holy Spirit. And while we're talking about it, let's move on to verse two and talk about, well, what is the question then that's being asked of these disciples about the Holy Spirit? What is the question, your second blank, of the Holy Spirit? Verse two, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So at this point, the question is implying that the Holy Spirit is received at a definite point in time, and that that time is the moment of your initial belief. I mean, Paul could have asked, have you received Jesus Christ? But he doesn't ask that. He says, have you received the Holy Spirit? Verse 2 again, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So it's understood that by asking that question, that receiving the Holy Spirit and receiving Christ go hand in hand. If you haven't received one, then you haven't received the other. And you can kind of get that from their answer here when they say, no, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul doesn't say, well, great, that's fantastic. Let me give you a second blessing. He says, you know what? I need to talk to you guys about Christ. You need to be filled in on what happened from John the Baptist, through Christ, through his ministry, through Pentecost. We'll also see through Jerusalem, uh, through Samaria, through Caesarea, and now up in Ephesus as the Holy Spirit is spreading, unifying his church as the Holy Spirit comes during this transitionary period. What, What is inferred again in the question in verse two is that if you have received the Holy Spirit, then it would be obvious that you have received Christ. But when they answer no, it is obvious that they had not yet received Christ. They had not even heard of the Holy Spirit. They they are definitely living under the old covenant, not under the new covenant. I mean, the new covenant, the whole emphasis of the new covenant is that, is that you will have, the, the Christ will come, Christ will give faith, and you will now have the spirit of God dwelling in you. That's Ezekiel eleven nineteen, and I'll, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. New covenant prophecy, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. 
And so what we're seeing is the new covenant promise is you'll be born again by the blood of the Messiah who sacrificed and atoned for your sin. And when you're born again by faith in Christ alone, you'll then be filled with the Spirit at that same time. And Jesus talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit even in John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance everything that I have said to you. So we can understand from these passages, as we look back now in Ephesus, what's going on in in chapter uh, 19, verses 1 and 2, that these men in Ephesus had not yet heard the full message of Jesus Christ. They were not, I believe, truly saved. They had not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit at this point. And this leads us to to verses 3 and 4. Your next blank, the clarification of John's baptism. The clarification of John the Baptist's baptism, verses 3 and 4. And so Paul said, he said, And to what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him. That is Jesus. So in other words, Paul doesn't say, oh, you were baptized into John's baptism? You guys are good to go. You got, you got everything you need. He didn't say that. He's like, wait a second. John's baptism was all about repenting and looking to the one that would come after him, the man Jesus Christ. John was preparing the way for the Lord. If you don't know about the Lord, then being baptized in John's baptism is not enough. If you weren't baptized into the Holy Spirit, then you haven't been baptized into Jesus, and that means you're stuck at that step one, if you will, during that time period of John's baptism. And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with John's baptism. John's baptism was good. It was helpful. It was preparatory. It just wasn't propitiatory. Big theological words. It was preparing them, but not propitiating, meaning atoning for, appeasing the wrath of God for their sin. And so verse 4 couldn't be more clear. John's baptism was telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Therefore, John's baptism, and in and of itself, was not an evidence of one's salvation. Salvation comes through Christ, not through John the Baptist's baptism. If 1 John 2.2 says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, not John the Baptist. John the Baptist's baptism atoned for no one's sins. It was Jesus' death that atoned for the sins of all who would repent and believe in him. And so the baptism of John the Baptist, again, it was noble. It showed movement in the right direction for the nation of Israel. John the Baptist's baptism directed the Jews to the person of Christ. And John and his disciples who went around baptizing and their message was a good one. It was one of repent and prepare for the way of the Lord. They needed to repent of their spiritual pride. They needed to repent of their Judaism. They needed to repent of their legalism. They were trusting in all these things to save them And John the Baptist is like, you guys aren't even ready for the Messiah. When he comes, you got to be able to see him and to recognize him and to come to him. And you guys need to get right as you get ready. And that's what his baptism was all about. It was directing the Jews and those who heard John's message to Christ. And so John had disciples who went around baptizing, but their message was always one of repentance, stopping short of salvation, and spiritual pride. I mean, really, John's message was this. The Messiah is coming. Your Savior is at the door, and you're not ready. You are unclean. So you need to undergo a means of cleansing to prepare yourself for the coming of the King. And after he comes, he will baptize you with the Spirit. 
And so John was pointing ahead to one whose baptism was superior to his own. So there's a transition going on between John the Baptist, between Jesus, and now the the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we see this as we look at number two, our second major heading. We've reviewed the baptism of John. Now let's look at the baptism of Jesus. Again, verse four and five. He says, uh, telling the people, you need to believe in the one who has come after him, that is Jesus. Verse five, now on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This means that these men here, the baptism of Jesus, really, your first blank says it's showing evidence of being a disciple of Jesus. To be baptized in Jesus is is one way to to show that now I'm, I'm a disciple of Jesus, not just of some other spiritual teacher, not just of some doctrinal statement or some other type of people somewhere. I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these men are not showing that they have become disciples of Jesus until this moment. And on hearing the gospel into verse four and verse five, they now decide to become followers of Christ. They were already close, but now they were all in. They had repented, they had believed, and now they had received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They're really demonstrating for us here the fruit of the Great Commission. Remember Jesus, the end of Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Well, this this is a fulfillment of the Great Commission. The the main verb, obviously, is make disciples in the Great Commission, and, and, and we do that by going, by baptizing, which is what's happening here, and by teaching. And notice how when they become disciples of Christ, they were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's what God said. When you go, teach them, make disciples, and you need to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is an indication that you receive the Holy Spirit at the same time you receive the Son, at the same time you receive the Father. You know, I like to say you can't split up the Trinity and say, well, I, I, I see the Father, I've accepted the Son, but I'm waiting on the Spirit. It doesn't work like that. There's one God in three persons, and when you're baptized as a believer, you're baptized in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. It all happens at that time of your conversion. And at your conversion, being baptized into Jesus is both a a dual thing here. You could be baptized spiritually into Christ by affirming Christ, believing in Christ, repenting and believing, and then there's also water baptism that comes alongside with that. Of Once I'm, my heart's been baptized, if you will, then my body needs to be baptized, and that's what they follow here on hearing this. They're now baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and that's an important element. I mean, water baptism doesn't save you, uh, but it, it is a picture of what's happened in your heart. Uh, I love what Mark Dever pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in DC writes about this uh, doctrine of baptism. He says this, baptism itself is a summary of our faith. Baptism is a confession of sin and a picture of repentance. Baptism is a profession of our faith in Christ. It reminds us of Christ's humiliation and death as he identified with sinners. When rightly practiced, it distinguishes believers from unbelievers, the church from the world. And so it's an important thing, right, to be baptized, to say, I want to obey the Lord's command. I want to identify with Christ and his people. I, I, I need to be different than the world. And part of that difference is 
obedience to all that Christ commands. And when someone becomes a true believer, they are now a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second subpoint says this kind of baptism of Jesus shows an expression of genuine repentance, shows an expression of genuine repentance. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts 2. Again, we're talking about verse 5. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we see this uh, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. I mean, the day of Pentecost is an amazing chapter telling us what happened when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and the other new believers like a mighty rushing wind. And they began to speak in other languages about the mighty acts of God. And everybody of every church age ought to look at Acts 2 and just be overwhelmed with the power and the beauty and the strength of the Holy Spirit doing miraculous things. But not only is there excitement about the fact the Holy Spirit's coming in power and in the miracle of speaking in other languages so all could hear, but there's also an emphasis on the day of Pentecost of eternal life. In fact, I would say the main emphasis of Pentecost wasn't just experiencing the Holy Spirit as awesome as that is, but it was experiencing conversion from unbelief to belief and receiving eternal life. And we get that because the chapter culminates. So it starts off, they're speaking in tongues, other people are hearing it, everybody's amazed, and now he's got the attention of everybody to do what? To preach the gospel. And as he preaches the gospel, then they respond this way. Look at Acts 2, 37, verse 37. Now when they heard this, he just preaches the gospel to them, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Notice he doesn't say, you need to speak in tongues and prophesy. That's a byproduct of what happened for many who were true believers. But what does Peter say that they need to do? He says in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the emphasis of the day of Pentecost is repent and believe in the gospel. And as you repent and believe in the gospel, you need to be baptized. And as you're baptized, you're giving an outward picture of an inward transformation and that, so that you can understand that as, as you receive the Holy Spirit, look at verse 39, the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, anyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves. This is the emphasis of Acts 2. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. I mean, you could almost say, who cares if you speak in tongues? Who cares if you prophesy? I don't mean to minimize it, but you get what I'm saying. The important thing is you need to be born again. You need to be saved. There is a crooked generation with a lot of false teaching and so much deception out there. And the Holy Spirit comes and brings light to your soul, conviction to your heart, clarity to the text so that you can be born again by receiving, verse 41, receiving his word. They were baptized and they were added to that day 3,000 souls. That's what we ought to be getting excited about. I mean, not saying I'm not excited about speaking in tongues and the mighty acts of work. God, I think that's awesome. I think it's incredible. I love Acts 2. But don't forget where Acts 2 points to 3,000 souls got saved. They were born again. They experienced eternal life and they got baptized. Water baptism is important. It's a part of what God calls us to do as followers of Christ. Listen to what Richard Averbeck writes on believer's baptism. He says this, quote, 
The early church could not conceive of a true Christian who was not willing to express commitment to our Lord in baptism. That was not even one of the options given to the person being evangelized. He either trusted Christ and was baptized, knowing the implications in terms of commitment and lifestyle, or he rejected the truth. So this commentator is just saying, look, being saved and being baptized, that's expected. Repent is a command, be baptized is a command. Baptism doesn't save you, only repentance does, but those who have repented will be baptized. It's, it's, it's just part of your DNA. I want to follow Christ. Whatever Jesus says, I want to do. I want to give a public testimony of an inward transformation. And today, I think in the Western world, we give too many people too many choices. You know, where do you want to go to church? Do you want to go to church? Do you want to get baptized? Do you want to, you know, serve in your church? Do you want to go? And it's like people are all these, well, I'm going to do this, but not that. That's, that's what's going on today in, in modern Christianity. Well, I'll do this, but I'm not. Did, did we not just sing, I surrender all? Everything I have is just so if it's in the book and God says it, I want to do it. I want to follow what he says. I just for the life of me can't figure out how somebody would be like, oh, I'm born again, but I don't know about baptism. I don't know if it's a lack of good teaching, a lack of conviction, or they're just outright living in disobedience. So what we're seeing here is this emphasis for these disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus now need to hear the full gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and they are ready to be baptized. Love it. Let's move on to our next subpoint. It says it shows being baptized into Christ. It also shows a humble heart appealing to God for a clear conscience. So I don't have time to really unpack this one in 1 Peter, but you remember how I said there's spiritual baptism and there's water baptism. Context is what shows us what's going on. That's why so many of the passages are like they were in the Jordan where there was much water. And it's inferred by most commentaries that here in Acts 19 that these believers, when it says they got baptized, just following the flow of what we see, repentance, water baptism, then they also are identifying, however, with this the spiritual baptism, this, this appealing to God for a clear conscience. And basically the passage in 1 Peter, I'll just skip down to verse 21. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, to the ark saving Noah and his wife and their kids and their kids' wives. Now, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. So he's saying, hey, just like the ark saved Noah, you can be saved but the baptism I'm talking about is not about water removing dirt from the body, but it's about the middle of verse 21. It's in about an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter's saying, if there is a baptism that saves you, it's not the water baptism of water removing dirt from the body. It's the spiritual baptism of you appealing to God through a good conscience because of the resurrection that you might be born again. And so there's this, there's this idea of the word baptism of, again, appealing to God. That just means I'm, I'm calling out to him. I'm, I'm declaring my faith in him. I'm, I'm, I'm convicted and, and confident in Christ and his work to save me through his death on the cross. And the water baptism, it's just a picture of that. It's just a picture. Just showing what's happened on the inside is now on the outside. I love how Robert Stein writes on this topic we're talking about. In general, a person could not be converted to Christianity in the New Testament apart from baptism. 
When individuals in the first century heard repent and be baptized or believe in the Lord Jesus and be baptized, none of them thought, can I do the first one without doing the second one? No one came to the conversion experience with questions to as whether baptism was a necessary part of being an obedient believer. You see what we're saying? It's, just, it's, it's not necessary for salvation. It's just fruit demonstrating heart that has truly been transformed because then you want to be baptized. If a new Christian truly came to Christ, truly was growing in their understanding of God's word, they should be running to the church to say, when can I get baptized? I've been born again by the grace of God. He changed my heart. He changed my soul. He changed my life. I want to get baptized. And yet what I find is I'm walking around the church like, oh, have you been baptized yet? Have you been baptized yet? Because I got your number. And I got your record, and sometimes we're walking around as elders and be like, oh, this person's never been baptized. And it's not like we have some type of cultish practice of baptism. We just want people to walk in obedience. And it shows this beautiful, humble obedience to be baptized. And so we have a baptism uh, service that'll be coming up here in a couple of months. Uh, the way we do baptism in our church is first you become a member of the church, and then we have a baptism class where you understand that part of becoming a member is being willing to obey Christ in the area, that, uh, uh, in all areas, but even in this area of baptism. So if that's something that the Lord's stirring in your heart right now, that like, man, you're right, I need to, God's word is clear, I gotta get baptized. Then you plan to sign up for that class. You'll be hearing some announcements on that here in the coming weeks. But what we are seeing is, is when these disciples, back to Acts 19, when these disciples of John the Baptist now become disciples of Jesus Christ, at this point, they are baptized just as Jesus taught, which leads us to what you've been itching to get to, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Who's been itching? You've been like, all right, Adam, I got the John the Baptist thing, I got the Jesus thing. Can you get to the Holy Spirit thing? Well, I've been talking about it on and off throughout the sermon, but this is such an incredible event that happens here, right? And we're talking here, just to fill in your next blank, the promise from Jesus. The promise from Jesus is this Holy Spirit. They are baptized into the name of Jesus, verse 5, verse 6, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And I say, amen, that's awesome, I love it. Laying his hands on them was not a requirement, but a gesture that showed Paul's affirmation of their new faith. And the Holy Spirit coming on them is not necessarily synonymous with them being baptized in the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of people today who will try to say something like, I've talked about the second blessing, and they'll be like, oh, have you been baptized as the Holy Spirit? They're often thinking of that as part of the second blessing. And I've been trying to teach you in this message from the text we've looked at is that being baptized into the Holy Spirit is more of what happens at your conversion. So as they were converted to Christ, they moved from John the Baptist baptism to being baptized in Christ, and immediately the Holy Spirit was part of what filled them at that moment. In fact, the phrase baptized with the Holy Spirit appears first by John the Baptist. Turn with me, if you will, back, just so we're doing a quick, short study in the phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit, okay? Matthew 3.11, Matthew 3.11, and we mentioned this uh, earlier in our sermon, but Matthew 3.11 is where uh, John the Baptist is out baptizing, and he says this in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, a lot of people enjoy thinking about like, man, I want to get baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
And I would say, hey, be careful about that because in this text, being baptized with the Holy Spirit is synonymous with being saved and then being baptized with fire is synonymous with being judged. For example, look at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will be burned, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the word fire at the end of verse 11 is a judgment fire. So don't go around saying, I wanna get baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. Just say, I wanna get baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I'd like to be on fire for the Lord. Uh, so just so that you keep it in context there. Uh, so what we're saying though is that the equation baptized with the Holy Spirit in Matthew 3.11 is equating that with being saved, that Christ will come and save you. We see it again in Acts 1. Look at Acts 1, 4 and 5. We see Jesus using the same term, being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, verse 4. This is right before the ascension. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to, be, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he's saying to them, look, some of you have been saved. There's discussion here about when did the apostles actually come to Christ? Some say prior to the resurrection and crucifixion resurrection. Some say after, because there is a dynamic change in the courage and the outspokenness, particularly of Peter. So I'm not here to answer that question. I don't know when they truly got saved. I just know that with truly getting saved comes this baptism of the Holy Spirit, comes this fortitude, comes this power to overcome sin, comes this ability to walk in obedience to the Lord. That's the emphasis of the Holy Spirit in dwelling the believer, not necessarily doing signs and miracles, as awesome as they are, and as, and as powerful as God is, who can do any sign and any miracle at any time he wants, it's not necessarily a mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit. The greater mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit is, I'm born again, I'm walking in truth, I'm walking in obedience, I have power over lust, I have power over pride, I have power over worldliness because I've been made new. And as a brand new man, and as a brand new woman, I can walk in obedience, I can walk in love, I can learn to serve, I can learn to be humble, because it's the Spirit's work in me. That's really the emphasis of the baptism of the Holy Spirit coming together with salvation. The emphasis of the Holy Spirit, even in Acts 2, I've already mentioned, isn't primarily speaking in tongues, it's being baptized, being born again, then being baptized, then sharing together, uh, teaching together, food together, fellowship together, singing together. The way the chap chapter ends is it's living Christian life together with other Christians. That's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit as well. And, and let's look at now the purpose, your next blank, the purpose in Acts of what we've been reading about, studying the purpose of tongues, and, and for that matter, all the sign gifts in the early church. I would say the main purpose was to bring authenticity to both the message and the messenger. So in other words, when the Holy Spirit showed up with power on the day of Pentecost at the front half of the chapter, Peter has everybody's ears. In the rest of the chapter, he just preaches the gospel and then people get saved, they get baptized and they start living in the New Testament, new community type of church. And so there was a, it was a attention grabber, if I could say it that way, to bring authenticity to both the message of the gospel, which is the main heartbeat of Acts 2, 
and then the, the authenticity of also the messenger that Peter, Paul, the apostles, and their close associates are indeed ministers of the gospel of truth. And then there's this time of transition between the old covenant and the new covenant. And that's what Acts is all about. It stands right between the old covenant and the new covenant, the way of the Jew and the way of the Christian. We've had the four gospels, but what do we do about church, the community, the ecclesia, the gathering, the covenant people of God? What do we do about that? And the way the Holy Spirit is rolled out if you will, in Acts is that in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the Holy Spirit shows up with speaking in tongues and prophesying in Acts 2 in Jerusalem. The second time you see this happen, it's in Acts chapter 8 in Samaria. The reason that's significant is because the Samaritans are not full-blooded Jews. They are a mixture of Jewish and Gentile intermarried After the dispersion of the northern kingdoms by the Assyrians, when they came back, they did not formulate a pure line to Christ. They are now mingled. And so a lot of the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. So the fact the Samaritans start speaking in tongues in Acts 8 is an amazing truth of God saying, hey, these are still my people if they come to Christ. Then we move from Acts 2 to Acts 8 to Acts 10, which is in Caesarea. Caesarea is a town still in Israel, but it's more of a Greek town. That's why it's called Caesarea. They're paying homage to Caesar. And as they're paying homage to Caesar, there's a guy there in Acts 10 named Cornelius, who's a full-blown Gentile. He gets saved. He starts speaking in tongues. And the church is like blowing, their mind is blown. They're like, how in the world can these Jews be saved and speak in tongues? These Samaritans be saved, they speak in tongues. Now these Caesareans are saved and they're speaking in tongues, which is why Peter, uh, at this point, when he returns to Jerusalem to give a report on what's happening, he says this in Acts 11, 13 through 18. I'll just read a section of it. He says to them, uh, Acts eleven sixteen, and I remembered the word of our Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift, that's the word I want you to see, because they're, they're complaining. They're like, Peter, how in the world could you say Cornelius is now a Christian? He believed the gospel and he started speaking in tongues. And this is the same gift. This is what he says in Acts eleven seventeen. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who is I that could stand in God's way? I can't stop the movement of God in his people through conversion and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so this is an amazing um, rollout here, now moving from Caesarea up to Ephesus. So now we're going outside of the land of Israel. We're going to present-day Turkey. We're going to Ephesus. And if nothing else, it's just the reason I believe that these uh, new converts are speaking in tongues is just show the power of God in Ephesus. I mean, Ephesus was a stronghold. It was a, it was a diverse city that was also diabolical because they worshiped in the, in the temple of Diana all kinds of lewd practices of pagan culture, and now we're seeing the piercing power of the Holy Spirit moving into Ephesus saying, not only am I gonna save these guys, but they're gonna have the same power that was shared by the other believers, and that's why this movement of the Holy Spirit is unifying the church. And today, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as they're seen by various positions, divide the church. But when it's given in the New Testament, it's unifying that these are real Christians, These are real Christians. These are real Christians. Now, again, there's all kinds of views on the gifts, but the main point I'm trying to say is that the giving of the Holy Spirit in this text was a affirmation that these disciples that were more of John the Baptist have now become true disciples of Christ. 
And that seal of the Holy Spirit is what was given to them to demonstrate that this miraculous coming upon the Holy Spirit of these 12 almost Christians, that now they are indeed true Christians who become bona fide Christians because of their faith in Christ, which led them to speak in tongues and prophesy all evidence of the fact that these men were indeed born again. Now, with that in mind, let's go to the point for today. You said, and what's the point about all this today? What's some application maybe that we should think about the filling of the Holy Spirit for us today? Well, well, now that the old covenant is fully transitioned, we are out of the book of Acts, we're past the, the first century. We have the whole Bible uh, w- with us to read and study and to practice. And, and so now we're fully in the new covenant. We're no longer in the need of miraculous works to convince us of the message of the gospel or the messenger of the gospel. We have God's word fully um, inspired, infallible, inerrant, and sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. And so the, the church, as it matures throughout the first century, we don't see these same type of miraculous works in uh, the church of speaking in tongues and prophecy. You see a little bit in 1 Corinthians, but it's mainly rebuked in chapter 14. Say, hey, you guys aren't doing it right. In fact, it's about loving. It's about loving one another. That's what the take-home message of 1 Corinthians 13 and 14 is, not learn to speak in tongues the right way as much as it's learn to love each other and to mature as the church. And so then uh, I think that uh, the emphasis I want to make is in Ephesians. So turn to Ephesians. You say, well, what about today, Adam? What what are we going to think about the Holy Spirit? I'm saying this to you. If you've been saved by grace through faith in the gospel, then you are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit every day. That's different than being baptized with the Spirit. I've been trying to make the argument being baptized with the Spirit is the same thing as being born again. You got baptized in the Holy Spirit, Same time you got baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit when you were saved. But now the emphasis in Ephesians chapter 5 is what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit in an ongoing way, which is Ephesians 5, 18. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That word filled is in the present tense. It's an ongoing uh, understanding ongoing, not just one time, but a continual. It's also in what's called the middle voice, which means you can't do it. It's got to be done to you. It's also an imperative, which is commanded. So it's like God's commanding you to do something that you can't do, but he does in you. And the command is in the plural, which means it's for everybody. Every Christian is to be filled with the spirit. And when you're filled with the spirit, what does it look like? You, you would think if just coming out of Acts, the next thing we're going to see is, and they were speaking in tongues and prophesying. That's what you would think, right? You'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, I've seen this before. They're filled with the Spirit. What do they do? Are they speaking in tongues and prophesying? That's not the emphasis as the church grows, as the church matures. The emphasis isn't on that, as important as that is. I'm just saying the emphasis is on what? Here's what it looks like. When you get filled with the Spirit, you're addressing one another, verse 19, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You're singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. You're giving thanks to him in all things. And what else are you doing? You're learning to have a spirit-filled marriage, verses 22 through 33. You know what it looks like to be spirit-filled? Sing, fellowship, worship, and in marriage, it looks like this, a husband leading his wife, like Christ loved the church, a wife submitting to her husband as unto the Lord, that marriage being a picture of Christ and his love for the church. Oh, what else does it look like? It looks like Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, children obeying your parents, And parents teaching their kids, not provoking them to anger, but bringing them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. 
So this is what spirit-filled living looks like in the marriage, what spiritual, uh, spiritual uh, filling of the spirit looks like in the home, and it's also what it looks like at work, uh, where it says in verses five through nine, it gives instructions to bond servants to obey their earthly masters and for masters to not to basically lord over their employees. That's what spirit-filled behavior looks like for the Christian at work. There's a fourth place where spirit-filled uh, is the whole armor of God, verses 10 through 20. That's what it looks like in spiritual warfare. You better be filled with the spirit so you can fight the flaming arrows of the evil one with the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, which we know is the word of God. So we use the word of God. So today I'm just saying the emphasis of being filled with the spirit, if you're looking for direct application today, number one, there's no second blessing of being baptized with the Holy Spirit later than your conversion. When you're converted, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, and now you better be filled with the Spirit day by day by day, which is confessing, repenting, and then asking God, would you fill me? Would you keep me focused? Would you help me to bear the fruit of the Spirit and not to bear the fleshly works of, the, 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 of, my, of, my, of my old sinful nature? I have a new nature. I want to live with you. And, 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 and I want to live in, in the power of the Spirit every moment of every day. And I would, I would just say that, that the almost Christian, the reason I entitled the text that, the sermon uh, that, is because I think the main drive of this text is these people aren't saved, they need to get saved. And there's a lot of people today in the church who aren't saved, who think they're saved, but they're just not saved yet. It's a lot of people. A lot of people who they've heard about John the Baptist, maybe they've heard about Jesus, but they're not yet truly born again. And one of my favorite stories from church history about the almost Christian who became a Christian is about the conversion of John Wesley. Remember him? Wesley was the son of a minister, a godly mother. He had attended Oxford and he had studied Greek and logic. He served as his father's assistant in London and was later ordained to the church. While at Oxford, Wesley was made a member of the Holy Club, which was a group of students dedicated to wholeheartedly pursuing godliness. He then became a missionary to the American Indians in Georgia, of all places. That's where I'm from. After failing in his work among them, he was forced to return to England. And he wrote in his journal, I went to America <coughs> to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? So somewhere in his mission endeavors, he realized, I don't think I'm a Christian. I want to convert them, but who's going to convert me? But by God's grace, while he was in America, he encountered some Moravians, a Christian group that emphasized Bible reading, prayer, and worship. Their spiritual vitality had a tremendous impact on him, and he sought out one of the leaders, having become convinced of his own unbelief. And then later, Wesley wrote in his journal about his conversion, which happened on the night of May the 24th, 1738. It's back in London, and he writes this in his journal on that night. In the evening, he writes, I went out very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preference to the epistle of the Romans. Now, if you know anything about Luther in, in the Romans, he was converted by reading Romans 117, where he finally realized the just shall live by faith. It's by faith in God, not by my good works. An emphasis on the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So somebody's reading on Luther's preface to the epistle of the Romans, and about a quarter before nine, 
That's 8.45, for those of you keeping math. 8.45, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That's his testimony. I mean, this guy had been around the church forever, served as a missionary, but it wasn't until that fateful night that he hears some articulation about faith alone in Christ alone through, through, through grace alone, you know, is what saved him. And prior to that experience, Wesley was a committed religious man who, who even traveled overseas as a missionary, but in spite of his theological knowledge, he wasn't truly born anew. He needed to experience and embrace the reality of a living savior. And I'm just asking you today, how about you? Have you been born again by a living Savior? You, you might be here today and you're a student at the Master's University. You, you could be here today and you grew up in a very sheltered environment in a, in a home school. You went to a Christian school. You've been in church all your life. Could you be an almost Christian where you know a lot but you haven't truly been converted? You can only be converted by hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus came that he lived a perfect life, that he was fully God and fully man, and he died on a cross for sinners like you and like me, and that if you would turn to him from your sin and trust in him and believe in him with all of your heart, then you could be born again and have new life, which means you have new desires, which means you have a new focus and a new purpose and a new way that you wanna spend your time and your resources and your energy. Maybe you're here today and that's you. And if, if so, when we sing our final song, we'll have a few people standing by this door. We're inviting you to come to Christ this morning. Or, or maybe you're here today and, 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 and you, you already know Christ, but you just feel some encouragement, some conviction. There's something going on in your life. We want to pray with you. We want to encourage you. We want you to be all in with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the take home for today. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Well, the way that's answered in our text is have you received Christ? You can't receive the Holy Spirit if you haven't received Christ. So number two, have you been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus? We mentioned the importance of spiritual baptism is what saves you. Water baptism is a picture of that. And then number three, are you being filled with the Spirit every day? Every day, we want to be walking in the power of the Spirit as we looked at the end of Ephesians chapter five and six. Don't be an almost Christians. Almost Christians almost get to heaven but they don't. You gotta repent and look to Christ so that you can be born again. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to open up the book of Acts and to see the beauty and the clarity of how Paul was able to help teach these disciples there who were primarily John the Baptist disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit who came only after Christ was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and that through knowing Christ, that they could be born again, baptized into Christ, and then filled with the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would just help us as we think through this theologically, not to lose the practical implications, the power of understanding what it means to truly be born again and to be filled with your Spirit so that every day we could walk in the joy of our Lord, that we could walk in victory over sin, that you would fill us with enthusiasm, that we would desire to do works for you, 
uh, as a demonstration of the works that you prepared in advance that we would walk in those. And I just pray for our church, God, that we would be a spirit-filled church, that no matter what our views might be on some of these particulars, that we would just see the beauty of Christ, the beauty of walking in the power of the Spirit, overcoming sin, and walking with a heart of love to sing and to fellowship and to serve together all because of Christ. Be glorified in our midst as we sing this final song, as we, as we uh, discuss what we've learned today. May you be encouraged. May, may we be encouraged with our heart's focus and desire to love and know you more. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.